Welcome to the Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. In this part of my conversation with Pratim, he tells me about his recent travels to learn Tantra practices from different places in the USA and Mexico. Then I share some of my lucid dreams and experiences about death and losing my mind. Okay, so what is the left hand and right hand path in Tantra? Yeah, so um, the idea of remembering, as my teacher says, righty tighty, lefty loosey. So right is about discipline, rules. No sexuality and lefty lousy is all the rebellious people and exploring, you know, sexuality. Like Osho would be the left. Yeah, Osho would be very much. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, I have been initiated into multiple tantra paths that are that are right and left. Okay. And so one of them is with Sadhguru. Um, then he doesn't c- call himself the Tantra. And I just happened to try it out because um, I had done the left-handed Tantra and I wanted to introduce my parents to something. And there happened to be a Sadhguru Guru, the workshop in Austin, the parents were here. So I was like, okay, let me just take them to that. And as I sat through it, I was like, there was so much much overlap between what his teachings are and his practices. And so he was actually there in no, person? No, he was not there. Oh, okay. I mean, his, yeah, his organization has expanded enough that most of his trainings are just videos of him. Okay, uh, okay, okay. Talking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the, the philosophy and even most of the practices, except the sexual practices, there's a huge overlap um, between what he teaches. Well, how did your parents take that? Like, what what was their response to that workshop? Yeah, they, they liked it a lot. But it's no point taking the workshop. The main thing happens in doing the practices that they teach you every day yeah and so they did it for some time they can see the, the benefits but then slowly you know like uh, yeah it, it takes an hour but so. it's still it still served some of your purpose of merging your two yes. worlds yes regardless of whether or not they continue doing the yes. practices you're like okay hey this shit might be too crazy for you but here's another version of it where it has big overlap that makes sense to you. Yeah. And yeah. also it served me as well. Yeah. Mm. Like these, like t- taking my parents there was an excuse yeah. for me, me to, to, to try it on. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then, so, so he has like multiple th- things he offers and there's a hierarchy. So I did that with my parents. That was the level done in his and I wanted to do the level two initiation. Um, the, 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 the pandemic hit. And so 
like two months ago they went to Tennessee to get a level two initiation okay um and that's also from Sadhguru's ashram yeah yeah his okay. ashram but he's not yeah. there yeah yeah um and yeah i mean like so the, the, there's a new practice that that was told uh like we have to do at home every day for you know we gone out in the morning we gone out in the evening um and i started doing it and i noticed that my hunger just had died out uh what hunger my hunger just like actual hunger for food yes. like physical hunger so before doing this i had been doing intermittent fasting as you know and slowly i had reduced yeah how much i eat to one meal a day mm-hmm. but by 11:30 am i would be so hungry i would be ravenous mm-hmm. for one meal a day i would mm-hmm. be ravenous like uh, and and after doing this prana yama practice in a way um i can go on for multiple days i don't know i haven't figure out how much in the end but at least two days easily mm. with, with do you feel food. like the hunger grows over those two days or no there is no hunger yeah, and the only reason i given ate in this yeah. period because i was traveling i was taking the workshops and mm-hmm. you know they were offering food only at certain times and then also i noticed that if after two days i eat i can't just eat right away i because then my digestive system goes mad and mm. so i have to slowly ramp up the breaking my fast is a slow process mm. and so i'm like oh, i don't have the time for you know like you know start with the soup and then do this and then do that and you know And they told you like no, they, they didn't tell anything. Oh, so they start with a soup and all of this business. It was just you figuring out the how to break your fast slowly. So, I have looked into intermittent fasting for mm-hmm. many years, mm-hmm. and there are people who do seven day fast and all that. Yeah, right? okay. And so the recommendation for them is to yeah, not just you know, oh after a seven day fast just. go to a buffet and eat all you can you know mm-hmm. that, that's not so they have a recommendation and i'm just t- t- taking this out of them so nobody at this ashram expected or warned you that your hunger might disappear no oh. because these things are not like you know the one size fits all mm-hmm. so and telling something has a dual effect one is to those who who it doesn't happen they're like oh am i doing something wrong it's mm-hmm. not happening to me to mm-hmm. some who is it starts happening they, they, they get attached to it yeah like oh now i'm becoming a guru yeah. or something wow so but what could you tell me a little bit about what that means to you that your hunger disappeared what significance is there to like some people might say that's actually bad for you that right. your hunger disappeared right what's the response to that i don't know yet because it has only been 2 months i don't mm-hmm. have the long term like oh my health has been amazing because with intermittent fasting yeah yeah i have been doing it for 5 years now mm-hmm. and i know that you know yeah regardless of what other people say i know my health has been amazing in mm-hmm. the past 5 years 
this is only two months old mm-hmm. and so i don't have you know like yeah even my personal yeah. Like, oh yeah I'll... but what exactly is two months old have you continued eating less for the last two months since this started so because i was traveling and in mm. workshops yeah. i did eat uh, yeah yeah one meal a day mm-hmm. yeah even if i'm, I'm not hungry mm. on some days i did try to go yeah let's see how much it goes mm. and at, at maybe two days later i was like oh i'll, I'll just eat because and then if i eat it like i said my digestive system is not ready um so so as i was traveling i continued to eat the 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 meal a day hmm. now that i'm here maybe after the thanks thing i intend to experiment with like hmm, how long will yeah. this last if i don't eat <laughs> i see so you still don't have hunger but you're still eating yeah okay so you, oh you just don't feel like hung, hunger like you used to before yeah i mean definitely not the ravenous hunger i haven't felt the ravenous mm. hunger at all but when you went a couple of times you went like two days you said yeah and didn't you feel fatigue or anything like that no your energy level stayed yeah oh, oh. that's weird i mean that scientifically speaking it can't continue because where will the energy keep coming from so there are these people yeah called breatharians okay they only live on prana or breath in no, is it real is who knows i mean mm-hmm. on you 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 youtube and on the internet you can find people who say that they did their and they eat maybe they don't need to eat but maybe once a week for social reasons they eat or something mm-hmm. uh wow so i'll let you know that like maybe after thanks Yeah, I'm going to try just yeah yeah be, just to see just see like maybe a week and see how it goes <laughs> I mean you know we have in India all heard of these like rishis and yogis who yes. went into some deep meditation and it's like their entire biological process slows down mm. like heart rate slows down breathing slows down they don't need to eat or drink for days and they start kind of like withering away but it's as if your soul has like really very far from your body mm-hmm. you don't really need any of those things <clears throat> do you see any connection between that and this so possibly but that that may also be like a hibernation type response that maybe our body had you know like multiple species ago mm. um and the, 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 those people are normally still you know if you're mm-hmm. s- s- sitting in meditation you're still so you slow down your metabolism and there's no, not as much energy expenditure um so th- this is different like yeah yeah i and these people who talk about we they are active in the world and we yeah, yeah. <coughs> the but the recommended they they to die in the ancient indian culture is that you die by going into a forest and you you know stay there you just stop eating and slowly yeah. hmm yeah 
Okay, so that was the Sadhguru training. Anything else interesting happened there? Mm. I mean, the, 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 the one thing I'm excited about is that I'm going to India uh, in February to do the level 3 of his path. Then the requirement for the level 3 is that for the 60 days leading up to, to, to the training, I have to do like 6 hours of yoga and breath work and meditation every, every day. day. Every day, 6 yeah. hours. 3 hours in the morning, 3 hours in the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean... Part of me is excited to, you know, like, what will happen if I do that much? <laughs> yeah. Like, it has a certain protocol of what exactly you should be doing yes. during those six hours. Yeah, yeah. But then you also already have some, had some daily practices. Yeah, but right. Yeah, so. The, what is it called? The acronym. Gaia sets. Gaia sets. Yeah, so you had something like that already. So are you going to stop doing those? Yeah, I mean, one of my other Tantra teachers, he recommends that, you know, like, from time to time, it's healthy to take a pause in whatever tradition you are in and do something else. Hmm. And and see if you, you are maybe do, do something else for six months yeah. and see, see if you're still called back to whatever you were doing earlier, you know. You said your Tantra teacher told you that? So, one of my Tantra teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see. Yeah. So, what happened? What was the next stop for you? This was in Tennessee. This was in Tennessee. Yeah. What was the next one? And then the next stop, I went to another training. This food is really good, by the way. Sweet. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this is my... I'm very glad that I feel all the hunger. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, is it still satisfying to eat yeah, tasty I mean, food? Yes, yes. Mm. Um, the satisfaction hasn't reduced. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And the, the, this specific food is my favorite food mm. that I can eat every day. You yeah. know, um, yeah, I don't need anything else. So... <laughs> Uh, so the next training I then to was like maybe two, two, three hours north of San Francisco. Then it's a super left hand path. It's called ISTA, International School of Temple Arts. Okay. It's a mixture of Tantra, Shamanism, yeah, Tantra and Shamanism. And uh, it's a modern take on it. They don't say they are of this lineage or that lineage. It's a modern synthetic mix of like, take this out of Tantra, take that out of Shamanism, take this from here, take that from there and mix it. And it is super left-handed in the sense that uh, before doing this this training, the, the, the only thing I'd heard about this training for a long time was that this is a training where facilitators or the teachers have sex with their 
students mm-hmm. and so i was like what because mm-hmm. in most of our uh, normal society it is a t- taboo for you know the mm-hmm. teachers or the therapist or whoever mm-hmm. to do things with uh and so like this is like that much left handed um yeah and so it was yeah, it was amazing i mean i see a lot of overlap between what they did and what my right hand tantra teachers talked philosophically like oh this is you know this is the nature of reality that is the nature of reality so that's why we worship in this way and we act in this way and here you you it's it's not spoken it is in action mm-hmm. so Yeah. I can't tell you much about what happens there but I can tell you one thing. So they teach you about how to recognize your the, the boundaries and desires and how to say no no no, how to make requests. And then there is at some point there is the time to free play. and you know do the gutter you want and you can say like oh yeah rejection doesn't affect me or i can you know i can you know tell my desire and then then the, it is there you can see like how much afraid you you you, you are to make the request how much afraid you are to have rejections you know mm. how much attachment to outcome mm-hmm. you have you know mm-hmm. uh, you see somebody you, you are attracted to uh playing with some somebody else and that's a moment of like oh i get to be aware of you know my own mm-hmm. uh, my own attachments and stuff like that uh so in a way this this night of free play is still a spiritual act because the invitation is to be grounded to to focus on the yeah. god arises out of all these interactions yeah know? uh so hmm but you have been through that kind of stuff many times before yes um and yeah this was a package of a lot of those things in the fun weekend did you go to anything after that esta Um, like there was the Tennessee Sadhguru, then there was Esta in San Francisco. You said, yeah. and anything else after that? I went to Mexico. Cool. Uh, I went to Mexico City where we we were. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the, then the the training was then hours south of Mexico in Tepoztlan. Hmm. And uh, there's a book called the the the, the, the Tantra Illuminated. and there's this author who has done his phd on shakti tantra i think okay but he's a scholar mm-hmm. who has studied sanskrit and he translates those ancient texts and he was having a retreat um there and it was around the time of um, day of the dead dios mm-hmm. de mm-hmm. muertos dia de los muertos okay mm-hmm. yeah and so the theme was death Mm. um and uh yeah it was uh, i mean it was more 
philosophy than you know like the 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 ista path which is there was more like chanting mantras and stuff like that but there we did a practice of um looking at our hands say and you know just just admiring how much complex it is there in this hand that if i had to study it it would take me a lifetime to oh, study yeah. uh and just being thankful that i get to use this amazing technology for free <laughs> you know um and also recognizing that this will burn on the funeral tire then you do that with all organs like you you admire them and you are also like and this will burn on the funeral higher yeah this um, might be a coincidence but um <clears throat> my sweet mate her name is amanda she is american but she's been kind of interested in like buddhism and like eastern stuff so she's taking a course she's just an undergrad she's taking a course this semester called buddhist art and um Yeah, sometimes we talk a little bit about that. And um she told me this morning that something I told her a while ago just like stuck with her. She keeps thinking of it ever since I told her. And it's that, you know, Indians like Hindus, I guess, or at least some Hindus have a practice that when your parent dies, you have to go and crush their skull before their body is set on fire. Wow. Like the child has to do it. Okay. Or set their face on fire in Bangladesh called Mukhagni. Mm. So I haven't had a direct experience of that. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to do it when my mom died, but I think there are still some traditions where you have to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's like I guess it's just like an act that forces you to kind of let go of some of your attachment to this body with which you have identified this person. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess I was like, oh, you've been thinking about that since then? Huh. Well, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, during this trip, just, you know, like before heading on this trip, before that, I had gone through a breakup as well. Mm. And so, yeah, after I did this practice with my body, I did this practice with my ex's body, like, like, yeah, she's amazing and beautiful, and mm-hmm. she'll burn on the tire, and just imagining that, you know, loosens of the attachment. Yeah, so exactly, like you said, you know, like, taking this cut off your parents. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I uh I didn't mean to detract you from this thread but there's something kind of related. I feel like you know when I grew, grew up I had a very like a gripping fear of death mm-hmm. when I was growing up like very kind of anxious about it. Um I feel like over time a lot of my kind of conscious or subconscious drive has been to overcome this fear of death. Mm. Um sometimes I have lucid dreams and when I realize that I'm dreaming one of my first impulses is to try to kill myself. But I know that it's only because uh-huh. I know that I'm dreaming. Uh-huh. Um so I will jump off a tall building. I've done it multiple times. Uh in my okay. in my dreams. Um 
And so when I invite someone for a podcast, I send them an email. And I invited this biophysics professor at UT for my podcast. And uh, in the email, I give some examples of just like, just example topics. Mm-hmm. Not for them to talk about it, but if I pretended to be a guest at my <coughs> podcast, these are just some topics. It's just to like, just to give you, just to kind of warm you up to the mm-hmm. idea of what kind of podcast it is. And in it, one of these kind of provoking topics that I wrote was, you know, I have these lucid dreams. Where does this impulse come from to want to jump? So it's just start, it's supposed to be just like a conversation starter or something like that. Supposing that I were to go on a podcast. Uh-huh. And he wrote me back and said, let's talk on the phone instead of emailing. And when I was talking to him on the phone, he thought that I wanted to talk about those things on the podcast with him. And he thought, oh, this is something very worrying. He was very worried for me because he thought that, you know, I had suicidal tendencies. Uh-huh. And he was ex- like really genuinely concerned. And I explained the whole thing to him. Uh, he was still a little bit worried. He eventually came on my podcast with a nice discussion. And I was like, you know, yeah, it is true that I want to o- go through my fear of death. But I actually really love life. I don't actually want to die. Mm-hmm. I want to live while not being afraid of death. Mm-hmm. And when I was having this conversation with him, he, uh, yeah, it kind of started to emerge from what he was saying that that wasn't quite the relationship he had with death. It was a much more like scary relationship for him uh, for a number of reasons. So I guess he would not pick take up that kind of a project that I'm taking up where I'm willingly trying to go into the thing that scares me. Mm-hmm. Even this morning, I had a lucid dream and I jumped from a balcony. Wow. <laughs> so what happens? And you... Different um, times, different things have happened. Okay. So the first time I did it was probably maybe... I don't remember if it was the scariest time or whatever. But the first time I did it, I remember it was at night. I was on top of like a tall skyscraper and it was all dark everywhere. And I went like I just jumped from the roof. The moment I realized that, oh, this is a dream. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go. Since this is a dream and this cannot really kill me, I want to use this dream as a sandbox for the most extreme and possibly the most useful experiment that I can do, (laughs) which is go directly into my fear of death. Uh This is not something that I can do in real life. Mm -hmm. I don't want to die. That fear has a real basis. I don't want to do it. But now there's a way for me to go through the fear without actually killing myself. Mm -hmm. So Neil, no bullshit, you know, you Mm -hmm. know, all your bullshit is just, you know, you're just going to go through it. So I jumped from the, I did it pretty quickly too. Like the moment I realized that this was a lucid dream, I didn't like beat around the bush. I like, I jumped like pretty quickly from the top of this building. And uh, so I fell the entire way. And then as I was about to hit the ground, instead of hitting the ground, I went through it. Uh And then I was like underground and I kept falling floor after floor and everything became like semi-transparent to me. Like the ground had become semi-transparent to me, but I, it was also the, everything that I was 
falling through was not opaque. Uh-huh. Everything was semi-transparent. And I could see the building and the floors also continued. Mm. And I just kept falling through floor after floor. And I could see people inside those floors as I'm falling through them. And I'm seeing them like kind of like greenish glowing blobs. Like if you've seen videos of people using like night vision cameras mm. to look around, you can see beings through um, like in a in a different room or something like that. So I'm just getting this ghostly filmy thing and I'm just like falling through it. So it didn't actually hurt me. Nothing bad happened. Uh-huh. I just kept falling through it and I was able to see these people who are not able to see me anymore and I was just falling through them. So that happened one time. But did, how did it end? I don't remember how it ended okay. after that. But it didn't end at the moment of impact. Or it didn't work. Okay. Uh, another time I did something else that was scary because I had done the jumping thing already. Today what happened was... Um, yeah, by the way... Okay, okay. So if you have a minute, let me tell you about this lucid dream because mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting. I often have like kind of like meta dreams where there's ongoing commentary and awareness about the dreaminess itself or the dream itself which kind of ties back into this trying to wake up because it's like, you know, I'm trying to wake up from the fear of death or whatever. Uh Um, Anyway, but so what happened today was I first had a dream that I was back in front of one of my classrooms in school in India. Mm. And I was back in, so it was like South Point School where I went and the walls are kind of pale blue and I'm outside one of those classrooms And I'm supposed to go into the room and outside the door of the classroom, there is a list, a paper list on the wall. And it's just like a printed table, like an Excel sheet. And every row is the name of a person that's supposed to be in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, people, as they entered the classroom, they tick their next to their name. So... I went up to the list and I saw there were only a couple of ticks, like maybe five or six. And I looked through them. So most people hadn't gone in yet. I looked through that list and I saw a last name Asimov, A-S-I-M-O-V, like the sci-fi writer Isaac Asimov. Asimov. Uh-huh. And I was like, there's an Asimov in my classroom? <laughs> Calcutta classroom. <laughs> in my Calcutta classroom. <laughs> so I go into the room and I see, yeah, there's just like five or six people. Uh-huh. And I recognize like all of them. I'm like, oh yeah, you were my like school buddies. Not really buddies necessarily, but classmates. Mm-hmm. Um, now I don't recall who they actually were. But in the dream, it felt like I knew who they were mm-hmm. and who, what their names are. None of them is like Asimov. I'm like, Where is this Asimov guy? And I'm looking around and I see suddenly a guy who's unfamiliar face you know so i go up to him and i'm trying to like be cool because it's like oh i know about isaac asimov Uh, so i'm trying to look cool and i ask him hey so uh because i already imagined that's his last name is asimov so i didn't even ask him that i just straight asked like what's your first name and in my head i'm like is it isaac you know and so i'm trying to kind of show off to everyone but this guy like just looks at me and he says, oh, not again. Like he has heard this thing so uh-huh. many times. And so he completely pops my bubble and I'm like, oh, I feel kind of disappointed. And I'm trying to play it cool. And I say, oh, yeah, I guess a lot of people must ask you that. And then the dream changes. And I'm at the mouth of Nueces Street uh, where the juice land is. And I see our co-op director, Veronica, who is an undergrad on the other side of the street. 
And I cross the street and I run up to her um, and I start telling her about this dream that I had. I'm like, hey, I had a dream. And I start telling her about the classroom dream. By the way, Veronica and I have talked about dreams multiple times. Mm-hmm. She had kind of a traumatic dream at some point, And in the morning she came and she told me that dream, you know. So there is some dream connection with Veronica, uh-huh. I think. I don't know. This is the second time I've dreamt of her. I don't know exactly why. We don't even talk that much or anything. So I begin to tell her about this dream, but I start talking in Bangla and she's laughing as if she's catching on. Like she's catching on to the fact that this is not real anymore. Like, you know, I wouldn't be talking in Bangla. So it started becoming more apparent to me, like, okay, this is not real, you know? And then the dream like kind of changes again. It's me and Veronica in a room Uh and there's a bed in that room. It feels like a hotel room. Mm -hmm. And there's a poster on the wall. And the poster says something like Mahakal Hani. Mahakal Hani. Hani. And it's kind of like a colorful poster. And I'm like, oh, what's that poster about? And Veronica says, oh, it's from this trip that I went to. They had, it was some kind of a trip, vacation. And um, they had really good honey. And it was this, I was like, oh, that seems, that, that matters almost nothing to me. This thing, some honey product somewhere. But she seems to be talking about it in such a way that it had some emotional connection. It mm-hmm. might be just some product for me, but it means something to her. Okay, well, Mahakal honey. And then she left. And then I'm, I sat down on the floor next to the poster because the poster had now suddenly changed position and it was like lower on the wall. I'm looking at the poster and I'm thinking, yeah, she said Mahakal. I'm like, isn't Mahakal the name of like a mountain in India? Oh, it's the same word. What if there is some linguistic connection between the two? It's so weird how the world is like connected in some kind of like mysterious ways. And I'm thinking all of this stuff. And suddenly I get this rising feeling that, oh, at this point, I think I'm pretty sure this is a dream. Okay. And then I look at the bottom of the poster. You know how if there's like um, a, a concert tour of a band at the bottom, they will have the names of the cities like separated mm-hmm. out. One name, like Austin, and then a dot, and the next name, Mm -hmm. Vancouver, and then a dot, and then another one, Budapest. Mm -hmm. So it was something like that. And I was like, let me try and read that. And there were symbols, but I couldn't read them. They were just like, I actually drew a picture of it in my journal. Uh This is the first time in my life that I've actually tried to read something in a dream. And I have found that like known effect that Uh you can't read stuff. That you you were able to read Asimov. I didn't actually read Asimov. I don't think I saw the symbols Asimov. Uh, That's a good question, actually. I don't remember reading Asimov. I just remember knowing that Mm. the name Asimov was there. That's different from the explicit action of reading Mm. it letter by letter. Mm. Because in dreams, you can just be infused with knowledge. You can start a dream knowing that it's your friend's birthday party. Mm. But you didn't have to read it anywhere. It's just like you know. Mm -hmm. Mm. Your brain comes installed with that knowledge. It was something like that where I didn't really read Asimov. Okay. I'm thinking of the letters Asimov now as I remembered that uh-huh. dream, but I don't think I actually read Asimov, Asimov. in that dream. Okay. But this was a time when in the dream, I was now actually deliberately trying to read it. Mm. And it was just like this symbols. I'm like, oh yeah, this is a dream. And, uh, and then I was like, how well rendered is this dream? How accurate is it? Because you know, dreams can vary in their detail. 
Some can be like kind of just blobby, whatever, vague. And some can be pretty like accurately rendered to where it is more realistic. Mm. So I went up to the poster and just looking at its texture to see how well... At this point, I know I'm just testing the dream. I'm like, how well rendered is it? And I can see little textures and reflections of light. I'm like, okay, this is fairly well rendered. All right, Neil, time to do dream stuff. And so I like get up. I'm like, what do you want to do? You want to do fl- you want to fly? But I just went out of the door. I just opened the door and stepped out. And I see that I am on a balcony. Uh-huh. And I look to my left, to my right, and it's just a balcony. And as I look down the balcony, I'm trying to see what am I actually looking at? And I don't actually see anything concrete, even in the center of my vision. So I'm like, okay, this is not actually that high definition of a dream. This is kind of like shifty, whatever. So I'm like, okay, I guess I don't have a lot of time in this dream. It's not a very stable dream. I want to do something. Should I do the jumping thing? So I like look over the balcony and I notice that there's some kind of a temporary structure, like a couple floors down and in front of the building. And it's just made of some like bamboo frames uh-huh. and tarp on top. Um, and it and it's a couple floors down from me. I was like, well, I've done this jumping thing before, but I couldn't find anything else to do. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to jump and see what uh-huh. happens. And so I start climbing over the balcony. And as I start to do so, I start to feel scared anyway. I'm like, okay, I am actually feeling scared. So, okay, so this is going to be worth something. This is not going to be dull. It's going to be kind of exciting. And uh, I let go and I jump. And as I jump and I'm falling, the, you know, there's a whoosh that goes through your body. It happens every time I go climbing and I have to jump from the wall. Uh-huh. That whoosh really went through my body, just coursed up through my body. And it was so, like, exciting that I knew at that moment that uh, that I'm smiling in my bed. <laughs> I knew it. I'm like, I I think I'm smiling. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I was. Uh, And I was like, okay, this is my dream. I can make anything happen. So I'm just going to bounce off of that tarp like it's a trampoline. Uh You know, so I like landed and I think I bounced a little bit. uh, And then the dream ended. Wow. So that was a long detour. Detour. But this is interesting. So how long ago did you start having these lucid dreams? Mm, my first lucid dream must have happened at least 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. Mm. Okay. Mm, I would say it happened maybe 15 years ago. Mm. And it was because I found out about lucid dreams either through the newspaper or on the internet. And um, I wanted to have them. And they had some suggestions, one of which was to keep a dream journal. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I woke up from a dream one time in my bed and I wrote down the dream and I was still sleepy. So I went back to bed um, and then I woke up. Eventually, when I woke up, I got up and I couldn't find any dream journal. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, I haven't even started to keep a dream journal. So the entire thing had been a dream. <laughs> That's not exactly a lucid dream, but it is where the dream approaches reality. Mm. So that was the first thing that I remember. And then subsequently there have been like more and more lucid dreams, dreams in which I knew that I was dreaming and I was doing, I was like flying around, things like that. I've also had layers of dreams where I wake yeah. up from a dream and then I'm in another dream and then I wake up from that and then I'm in another dream. And the final dream looked exactly like my real life. 
I was in that room. I woke up in that room. The only thing different was the um, the bed sheet. The bed sheet was a different color and different texture. Everything else was the same. <laughs> and then I, when I finally woke up, I was like, okay, this is real life. The only thing that's different from where I was right now is that the bed sheet is different. <laughs> ah, so this is like, this is... I mean, I don't know. You mean, how, why do I not do such risky shit in real life? No, like, how do you know that, okay, it's okay to do risky shit, you know, because... I just get a feeling. I can't really... See, it's kind of hard to tell you now how my mm -hmm. dreaming mind knows that it's a dream. Mm -hmm. Because it's my awake mind here and now that's trying to recall something mm -hmm. about how I knew that I was dreaming. But that was a different mind. And you know, as you try to recall dreams, it's not a faithful reproduction. It's as if you generate something using computer A, and then you try to describe it using computer B, and computer A and computer B are like kind of somewhat similar, but slightly different. Your dream mind is not just like your regular mind. Mm. Your dream mind doesn't have the same suspicions as your regular mind. It accepts different things about reality. It doesn't worry about how did this dream start, shit like that. Memory is not being formed in exactly the same way. So how I know it's a dream, I don't exactly know. But sometimes I just know. I just like, and when I know, I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally know. This time, maybe it was because of the symbols or whatever. Mm. But there was something already about the dream fabric that had been starting to tell me this is a dream. Mm. Um, and when I know it's a dream, there's not any way that I can unknow that. In the same way that right now I cannot prove to myself or another person why this is not a dream. But it just was like, oh no, this is not a dream. This is reality. Yeah. The only time that it kind of became dangerous was I took shrooms one time. I think I told you, right? <laughs> When I took shrooms, it just became kind of like, oh yeah, death is not real even now. So I almost like jumped. Not because I'm suicidal, because I was like, I just want to go through my big fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. But yeah, 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 normally yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah, I remember that incident and that's what they, they, they was like, oh, like, that's where the dream and reality started mixing, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's why you should have a sitter. That what you, that's what you told me. <laughs> But not if in your dreams you try to, you know, like, uh, you know, like, assassinate Putin or... Yeah. Pass a climate change legislation or something like that, you know, so that yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is a hard thing, it is impossible thing, but yeah, but I guess it doesn't relate to my immediate realities. blockages quite mm -hmm. as much. So, you are saying you don't have any theory of assassinating Putin in real life? No. <laughs> I don't think I'll have the pleasure. <laughs> Yeah, so um, so you're talking about, I guess all of this started because we were talking about releasing the attachment mm. towards like living people and yeah, towards your own life.
So is it something related that the goal is sort of to live life where you're kind of free of this grasping onto it or kind of more free of attachments? I mean, I don't know, but uh, uh, I guess like uh, it's at least, I don't know if it's the, 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 the end goal that there's a lot of these attachments release that's him attachment to food has released and now then I look at people eating and I can almost see like they like drug addicts taking drug mm. and so just noticing like oh you know yeah I am I was or maybe when I am attached like that Mm. Um, so just who knows how many layers of the onion there are that, that, that I'm attached to but just just as I lose my hands on these things I get to see that yeah oh I was doing it as compulsively or as yeah. as unconsciously uh, yeah. As I now see the people around me, yeah. Um, and that just applies to so many things in the life where we are following career or the relationships or the money or mm. fame or whatever mm-hmm. compulsively, and it's only after we oh yeah we, we release it a little bit of it. Yeah, it's just a, it's not just like a personally generated attachment, it's like socially generated, it's yeah. like a feedback loop that keeps on going, propagating itself generation after generation, system after system. Yeah, not only do we propagate it for everyone, for ourselves, we also do it for everyone mm-hmm. else, like, oh, you got to do it too, Yeah. Everyone is probably weirded out by the presence of a person who does not have those attachments because it questions their reality also yeah they're like wow you're not afraid of death oh i don't like that <laughs> i mean that happens on all levels right like yeah. if you 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 are into f1 racing and i'm like ah oh, f1 racing is stupid then you try that is a personal offense to you even yeah. though you know intellectually that you yeah. know like yeah i mean some people are into football and some people are into this and that and mm-hmm. so but if I tell you, oh, iPhone racing is stupid, it's like the personal insult. Um, the other thing that happened that night when I had taken the shrooms, I don't know if I told you, is I feel like my, I mean, of course, I have a lot of fears, but my two big fears still are death and losing my mind, mm. even if I'm alive. Mm. Because I depend on my mind for a lot and I think I'm still very identified with my mind. Mm. I mean, I'm a scientist, I got a PhD and you know, my career depends on that. But also I feel like a lot of the full sense of fulfillment of my life comes from what my mind does. Mm. Like curiosity, creativity, joining the dots, inspiration, all kinds of stuff like that. Exploration. So a lot of the quote unquote meaning of my life 
is tied to my mind. Yeah. So I know that I have a strong attachment to that. Uh-huh. And I know that one of my biggest fears is slowly losing my mind. Mm. Um, and that actually happened that night. So that night I actually like lost my mind. Mm-hmm. I totally like whatever it means to say lose one's mind. I lost my mind. Uh, like I d- didn't know basic things about myself anymore. I didn't know what the identity was. I didn't know what a PhD is. Didn't know how to get back in my room. Couldn't, was having a hard time like stringing words together to make useful sentences. How do you call a person? Like everything was just, just uh-huh. you know, I, I remember saying the phrase later on when enough of my mind was back that I could say this phrase. I remember describing it to myself as my mind was a Ferris wheel in outer space. <laughs> That's how it was just gone. It was nothing. There was no inside or outside to it anymore. Um, and so someone found me. They couldn't get be, get me back in my room um, because I had locked myself out. And uh, yeah, it was actually Veronica. Okay. <laughs> or Veronica came later, maybe. Yeah. So uh, I was kind of, she was trying to like put me to bed in a one of the common rooms. And as I was about to go to bed, I realized before that I was just not even recognizing that I'm in a different state of mind. Now there was some meta awareness filtering in only enough to realize that my mind is gone. Uh, so I was like, Oof, your worst fear has come true. Mm-hmm. And the thing to remember is that my regular mind wasn't there to do all the calculations and say, hey, this kind of stuff can happen on strong doses of psychedelics. That doesn't mean you'll be like this permanently. You can come back. In fact, historically, uh, when they when in the U.S., they started kind of all this propaganda against psychedelics. They were saying that these are, these will make you crazy. Mm-hmm. And they were called psychotomimetics, meaning that they mimic psychosis. <laughs> but they were giving way too much. And so if you take way too much, you kind of like have a temporary feeling of insanity. And some therapists had actually thought of trying out those crazy things just to have an idea of what the do their patients, patients feel like. Yeah. You know, but so this is an unheard of or anything and you like, you know, come, come back down from, but my mind wasn't there yeah, for any yeah. of that. So at that moment, I had no, I had lost my mind and there was no guarantee that I would ever be back, like sitting yeah. in front of you right now saying all these words, that any of those things would ever make sense. So my worst fear really had come okay. true and not in a provisional sense. It had happened. I was fucked. And uh, I was like, okay. That means I should really be very scared now. But somehow I couldn't manage to feel as scared as I had been worried Mm -hmm. I would be. Like, even though my mind was saying, fuck, 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 fear comes from the body. And my body wasn't producing enough fear. (sighs) So uh, I was like, okay, you know, I'll just listen to my body. Not my mind, because it's always like the wiser one. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I can't figure out why I should not be freaked the fuck out of my mind right now. But I don't feel like it, so I'll just fall asleep. 
and we'll see what happens, all right? And I fell asleep. I woke up. My mind was back. Um, but it did teach me something. It taught me that one of my worst fears, if it actually happens, I will not be as scared as I think I would be. But maybe I will be. I don't know. In this experience, you were saying that there was a part of your mind that did return. Yeah, a little bit. Enough, little bit. enough return to take stock and say nothing exists, dude. <laughs> like there's something seriously wrong. Mm. Before that point, it didn't even know that anything was off. But I was just tripping. That who made the choice to listen to your body? I think yeah, even me, this Neil that you're talking to, often make that choice. I often make that choice. Like I'm just going to go with my body and not my mind. But, uh, so I don't know who it was, but there is something in me that right. already does that. Uh-huh. So yeah. it seems like, you know, some part of your like rational yeah. mind. So I don't think the, it was any part of my rational mind. Not, not rational was, mind. Yeah, so yeah. Let me explain the tantric mm-hmm. point yeah. of view. Yeah. So, in th- so the English word mind mm-hmm. in tantra... Um, we have three parts mm. uh, that make up this mind. It's called manas. Manas, chitta, one, one of them. Buddhi, Buddhi. Oh. Chitta is also something I don't know maybe that it fits, but at least the path I have studied has these three. So, um, So, Ahankara is the I maker yeah. that take experiences and, mm-hmm. and makes an I out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to remember what is the distinction between Manas and Duddhi. Uh, because one is about processing of the senses. I think that's the manas. That's the manas. Uh, then the other is like decision making. That's buddhi. That's buddhi. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, buddhi is the intellectual stuff, and manas is like bare conscious awareness and perception. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so seems like of those three, some of it was offline. Oh, buddhi was you. offline. <laughs> but some of it was still. Something was still online that could, you know, say, oh, you know, yeah, listen to your body. Yeah. I don't even know if it was my mind. It might somehow, I mean, okay. My body might be telling that whole thing. It's like, don't worry about it. Just, you know, it's not, I'm saying it as if it's words, Words, but it wasn't really words. You know, there are some situations when you, maybe your mind thinks that you should be scared. But when the situation happens, your body is just does not generate that fear. It's not like some part of your mind then comes and says, oh, I guess I'm not feeling afraid. Well, maybe it says that. But the originator was something like the body. Mm. And the same thing has happened with me where, like, I used to be scared of heights. And um, after all this climbing, if I'm on a height, my body just does not feel scared. So if my body doesn't feel scared, my mind doesn't start, like, panicking or saying mm-hmm. scared words. Mm. But where is that coming from, actually? I don't know. Somewhere in the body, where is it stored in the body? It's, of course, interfacing with the mind. Whatever I'm calling body, 
It's still the nervous system uh-huh. that has learned not to be scared. But I guess I call it body because that feeling is just a raw feeling. It's not, it's non-verbal. Mm. Like the lack of anxiety at the time was not some kind of voice in my head saying, I'm not going to be scared because the voice was scared. saying, oh yeah, yeah, I guess I should be scared. But the non-verbal feeling in which I was abiding was yes, concern, but not that. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for swinging by the Room of Lives. Take care. Until next time.